0: Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta and Gordon. Our daft today, Masachat Yavamot, daft Dalet, page four. So these are one of the Dafs that I like because it gets really meta. And the meta discussion here today is, how do we decide to interpret sukim that appear next to each other? And this is basically the primary discussion that takes place on Ahmed Aleph. And it starts with the following, Ba'amu Revi Min Rabbi Elezer says, from where do we know that we can basically learn halacha, or basically midrash halacha, from smuchim? Now smuchim literally means sort of like, you know, next to each other. I've seen some English translations that say juxtaposition, right? But the idea is, is that when you have two psukim, two verses next to each other, does that mean that that juxtaposition of those two psukim that it is open to some type of homiletical interpretation. And how do we know this? And it's fascinating because we're talking about smuchim in the five books of Moses, right? But here to prove his point, Rabbi Elezer quotes a Pesach from Tehillim from chapter 111, P'sukhin, uh 7 and 8, that says, Right? Smuchim, like next to each other, juxtaposed forever and ever, made in truth and uprightness, right? So when things are next to each other, what they have some type of truth, they contain emet, and they have some type of yeshrut in them and some types of uprightness. Now, again, do we think that really because of this pasuk in Tehillim, that's why people use this principle. I think people were using this principle of smuchim, but it's nice to find a pasuk that sort of says nicely why smuchim is a good thing, but again, these are these types of meta discussions. How do we interpret? What's the idea of interpretation? What do we do with what? what can we do with psukim in the order that they appear? Or what topic they're next to? That is a very interesting discussion for the rabbis to have in terms of how halacha is actually learned. At so that's Rabbi Elazar's opinion. But I'm a Rabbi Mishum Rabbi Elazar ben and Rav Sheisha says in the name of Rav Ilazer, it says in the name of Rav Ilazer ben Azari, mm-hmm. So then Rav Sheisha comes and we bring it back to our discussion of Yivam and shows us an example of Smuchim where we learned a halacha. So what's the halacha here? Let's say we have a Yivama, right, the woman who now needs to marry the avam and the avam becomes afflicted with boils one and literally the language is one may not muzzle her in other words she is not allowed to be forced into this marriage she is allowed to refuse it okay and he basically she would get to do chalit. why is that is because there's a pasuk in Devarim in chapter 25 verse 4 that says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the corn And then it says in the next pasuk, in in verse 5, in in pasuke, right, it brothers well together, which then begins a whole series of sukim about Yivah. And so the idea is is that just as it's prohibited to muzzle an ox, we also are not allowed to muzzle and ignore uh, a Yavama because she does not want to marry uh, a yavam. Now, this passage in itself is also interesting. You know, we learned this opinion of Abba Shaul yesterday, where there kind of was a hint to an idea that, yes, the idea of Yibum is completely transactional, right? But obviously there has to be a sense of attraction or a desire to want to be married. And here they give a very interesting description, which is that the Yavam has boils. Mukes Like the idea is he's repulsed. The Yavama has a reason for not marrying him, and we have to listen to that reason. So besides the meta discussion that we're having here, we're adding an additional layer that I think we're going to continue to unpack with Yibum, which I think is a law that the Torah gives us about a transaction that has to happen in order to alive, but yet recognizing that there is still human emotion involved in it. What other mitzvah do we have where we sort of care how you feel about it, right? Like not too many. And so it's interesting that here her willing, you know, her unwillingness to enter in this arrangement actually uh takes place. But this is basically learned not by the halachot of Yibum itself, not by the Sukim of Yibum itself, but because of this pasuk that appears before. and this is the type of Smuchin. this is the type of just just a just I'm not saying this word correctly, juxtaposition, excuse me, uh that uh sukim that allows for this type of Midrash Halacha, right? And then Ba'ama Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef says, "I feel Luman darish but Mishnet Torah darish." So now Rav Yosef introduces even a more interesting opinion, which is there are some who do not believe that you can do smukhim at all, but you can do smukhim when it comes just to safer divarin, right? That's always what we call Mishneh Torah. Rav Yehuda Ba'ama lo darish, darish. Right. And so now they quote this very interesting opinion of Rabbi Yehuda um, that um, that he says that you cannot um, uh, that you cannot uh, rely on smuchin. But where can you do smuchin? You can do smuchin only in the case of the Mishnah Torah. Now, that's also an interesting uh, discussion. Why is it that it would just be uh, with with the Mishnah Torah? So, you know, one of the questions here is why Devarim? Why would Rabbi Yehuda hold this opinion about Devarim? You know, Devarim, because it's written by Moshe, uh, or it's really Moshe's summary of many of the laws of the Torah, you know, sort of is its own book. And therefore, if Moshe placed sukim or certain teachings next to each other, the idea is is that you could learn something from it. So, you know, this, this was really the passage I wanted to share today interesting machlokas, right, whether you use Smuchim or don't use smuchim, We have this opinion of Rabbi Yehuda that says you can only use smuchim in, uh, in um, Devarim. And I think what's also interesting is the example they try to give about smuchim is one of the topics of this masachet. And I think even within that example, we learn something interesting about yibum itself. So really good meta-discussion here.
1: So I also find this to be very valuable. Um, I think the question of smuchin juxtaposition, whatever, I, I think it's a kind of thing that comes up in seventh grade English class, also, right? Like, to what extent, does the fact that things are next to each other, does that matter? Does that lend meaning to to each other, right? And I would say that here, there's an added component, which I think maybe is the crux of what's going on here, namely, do we think that that juxtaposition is intentional? right? Is it there? Like, was it worded in this way for the sake of us deriving this kind of meaning? And so then I find that to be, that's the machloket, right? Like, is it more of a happenstance or it doesn't really matter that these, that these wordings are in proximity to each other? Or do we say, no, it's very important because they are in fact next to each other and that by virtue of them being next to each other, we understand that that is intentional and therefore we should derive thus and such from it, right? So then, and what I find to be interesting is the distinction between this claim about Mishnah Torah, about Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, that because Moshe, you know, the whole of it is in the mouth of Moshe. So he ordered it, right? He put it in order and he organized the topic, so to speak, or to figure out what to say when. And then by virtue of that, like the appreciation that he's just, you know, the one, you know, voice organizing it, so to speak, then you could say well, that's okay, right? Like, so it's, so then juxtaposition makes sense because it's all from Moshe. And then I have this very burning question, which is like, hello, I don't understand. We generally say, Chazal certainly say, right? Like the whole rest of the Torah is also from one author in that way. And so the fact that it's, um the, the distinction there is a little bit lost on me until we say like, well, this commentary that I saw says, the idea that it's from Moshe, it's as if it's like one big statement. And as opposed, not just one author, but one big mouthful, right? And that's a little bit different than to say the whole rest of Chomish, which I think we say is all from the one author, you know, the one divine author. um, It's certainly not one statement. It's over many years and it's presented in that way. So I I can accept that a little bit better. Um, What I want to talk about comes, I'm in the section of the Gemara on Ahmed Aleph that comes right after what you've just discussed here, Dana, because I want to delve into a little bit like why it is that Rabbi Yehuda, for the most part, does not meaning Sefer Devarim aside, does not accept the premise that juxtaposition, juxtaposition is in fact, you know, as I would say, like meaningful or or requires the interpretation. Ba'alma minal and How do we know that he generally does not darish? Does not derive these kind of homiletical interpretations? from the fact that the different verses are next to each other. So we have a break that cites Ben Azai who said, So there's a verse in, say, for Shemot in the book of Exodus that says that if you have a witch or a sorceress, I guess, uh, you cannot let her live, right? You're not allowed to let her remain alive in Nehmar. And there's another verse that says, and this is kind of a startling juxtaposition, shall we say, even just within this passage of the Gemara, whoever lies with uh, an animal, meaning we're talking about bestiality here, shall surely be put to death. That's mot right? Meaning there's a punishment, that there's a death sentence for one who engages in bestiality. So the Gemara says, well, these two verses were juxtaposed, meaning the first one is chapter twenty-two, verse seventeen, and the second one is chapter twenty-two, verse eighteen. So, on the one hand, it seems it seems kind of startling that we have the 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 witch, the sorcerer, sorceress, whatever in chap- in verse seventeen, to be followed by a prohibition against bestiality. But then the claim then is, you know, what are we going to learn from the fact that they are next to each other? And so the Gemara says, well, just as one who engages in bestiality is stoned, is put to death by stoning, so too, we execute a sorceress via stoning. And so Rabbi Yehuda says, and I I think it's such a, a sharp rebuke, right, like, because the Torah put these two things next to each other, we're going to kill somebody with Skila? Meaning that seems a little bit harsh is the point. Reading it might well be that those are legitimate punishments for these two things, but not by virtue of the juxtaposition of the verses, only because of the actual, you know, level of punishment that might be deserved, right? You don't establish a death penalty based on two verses being next to each other. Ella. So Rabbi Huda says, really, we're talking about a source. Like, why is it that she's put to death by Eskila? not because of the exhibition position, but because the ov and the yidoni, meaning this is people who commune with the dead, seances and things like that, right? So that's also a kind of witchcraft or sorcery. <laughs> So again, why are they singled out from elsewhere in the verse? So what are we talking about? This verse is in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 20, right? Where it says specifically somebody who is this kind of medium or a wizard will be put to death and they will be stoned. Meaning there it's explicit in the verse that the people who engage in this kind of witchcraft, this seance, communing with the dead type of thing, which was considered to be like a... a I don't know, some kind of legitimate communication, right? That we have stories in the Navi, in fact, of consultation with such people. I'm thinking of Shaul in particular, right? But the idea that um, it's not the idea, the practice that anybody who's engaged in this is worthy of a death sentence, and the death penalty is by stoning, and that's explicit in Sefer Vayikra. So then once it's explicit in Sefer Vayikra, af mechashifah baskilah. So then also we're going to say, that the 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 sorceress or the witch should also be put to death by Skila because it's in the same category of violation of I don't know Torah faith God you know the, the unity of God type of thing you know to mess with this it's all in the same category so the Machshefa is put in the category with the Ov and the Yidoni who are explicitly put to death by Skila, so she too is put to death by Skila in that category, and not because she happens to be in a verse that immediately precedes the case of bestiality, where the person who engaged in bestiality is put to death by Skila, and that's also its own, like there's there's a question of like what's explicit and what's not explicit, but we don't go and put someone to death by virtue of proximity of verses. Like that is too too dire of a situation to rely on like literary textual analysis, and I gotta say, I really appreciate Rabbi Huda's position here because I agree, right? Like, I think we all agree that you you can't put somebody to death by virtue of literary textual analysis. It has to be because the the sin is so grievous, so egregious that the death sentence is warranted. And Scalia is considered the worst of them, right? Well, depending on how you look at it. So, I I. Whether we should learn from juxtaposition in general, I think, is an open question. But whether we should
0: always do it, I think Rabbi Yehuda makes a very good case for not always doing it. Right. But I think the point is, for Rabbi Yehuda, like, it kind of has to be an either or, right? So he's basically saying you can't do it because of these types of cases, because it it, it would lead to sort of extreme interpretation, I guess, in a way for him that he's not comfortable with. So he limits it really to just Devarim um, because I don't think otherwise it's not a rule. Like you can't be like only if the results in this type of outcome, like this type of Midrash halacha, but not if it results in this type of Midrash halacha. So Rabbi Yehud in a way is saying like, this is too, I don't know, powerful of a it tool. It's, it's a tool that could be, I guess, misused or not lead you down to a good halachic path.
1: I hear it. It's an interesting point, right? Like, to say that you have to accept this as a method of interpretation always, or you can't accept it at all, I wonder if we would nowadays with our you know postmodern you know differences of interpretation every which way, I wonder if we would say, no, you could use it sometimes and not always.
0: I'm going to draw an analogy as a doctor. It's like a public health policy, right? Like you make a policy and it's just the policy. Are you going to find exceptions in that policy? Sure. But you can't make those exceptions because at the end of the day, it's a policy. You know, like I like that. I like that. That's like, a good like example. I would get called like as a, you know, I was a camp doctor over COVID, so we had policy certain things. And then somebody who called be like, no, but in this case, and the kid, blah, 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 whatever it is, I'd be like, yeah, but that's the policy. Like once you start making it, and I literally would use this expression: if you make it, tell me Like, <laughs> like, so I think, like in a way, that's what you would is saying, like. It's too dangerous of a tool, or it will lead you to somewhere that's so bad. I'm willing to not make it policy. It can't be part of the policy. It just can't. I be hear part you.
1: Of the, I hear you. Trial. But the irony is that he's not arguing against Skila for the Machshava, right? right. Stealing right. for the machshifa is a given. So the fact is, this very dangerous tool but he is not like at it. all he dangerous in this case. This
0: way, but he doesn't. I understand. This way.
1: I understand. But there's no enough, I mean, There's no practical difference in this particular case where he's showing, look how dangerous it could be. Because oh my goodness, you might actually put somebody to death by virtue of literary textual analysis. And the answer is like, okay, but you're putting her to death anyway. Right. In this so particular case, really.
0: So I guess that's really the question to ask is, is there a Nafgamina somewhere? Like, is there a case somewhere where he learns it totally different than Chachamin uh, in a way that really has a practical application because he won't use Smuchin? I guess we'll find out. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Bring this review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadram website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. Until tomorrow, go and learn.